This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The title of the talk is uh, Kidney Liver Overlap, Recognition of Kidney Disease, the Impact on Symptoms, and Who Needs Both Organs. Um, so we'll go through the scope of the problem, which I will hopefully convince you that it is a common occurrence um, and how we should go about recognizing it, because it is something that even though it's common is under-recognized. Um, the burden of the problem in terms of what it means for patients' outcomes and, and symptoms and complications, how we've gone about it from fixing it, both from a transplant perspective, but also from uh, in the clinic and a preventative perspective. Um, some of the outcomes of mostly simultaneous liver kidney transplant and kind of next steps. So, um, so for the scope of the problem, number one, it's very common. Okay, um, if you look at patients who are listed on the wait list, you'll find that about 25% of those patients will have some component of chronic kidney disease. Um, you'll find that if you follow patients listed for transplant over time, about three quarters of those with decompensated cirrhosis will have some. Uh, will experience at least one episode of acute kidney injury. Um, simultaneous liver kidney transplant rep, uh, represents about 10% of the transplants that happen nationally. Um, and the what I'll show you on the next slide is that these problems are increasing. Um, so on the left is a study that we used looking at waitlist registrants, where we showed that um, the burden of AKI and the frequency of its occurring of both acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease is increasing, and particularly chronic kidney disease with the emergence of fatty liver disease and a greater burden of diabetes and hypertension in our, in our population. Um, you can see that the burden of chronic kidney disease has almost doubled over the, over the decade from 2002 to 2016. And these trends are not... Um, are not only in the transplant population. You know, we've looked at the national inpatient sample, which looks at um, all people who are hospitalized in a subset of hospitals in the U.S. And the burden of each of the types of kidney dysfunction amongst patients who are hospitalized with a liver diagnosis is also increasing. And so the co so it's a more frequent occurrence that we're running into. And with this increased burden, naturally, there's been a, a significant uptake in the utilization of simultaneous liver kidney transplant. So on the, you know, if you go from 2009 to 2016, the, the, the number of S simultaneous liver kidney transplants increased from about, you know, 375 to almost 800. Um, and with that, there was a policy that we'll talk about um, in 2017 that went to standardize this practice. But these are just what we're recognizing as those with kidney dysfunction. But the question is, are we actually recognizing the whole problem of what people are going through? And so with that, I thought it would be wise to review some of the definitions. Um, so for, a uh, for acute kidney injury, we've adapted the akin um, criteria in the liver population, where you know, we stage acute kidney injury from either 0 0.3 or less than um, or or a 50% um, to doubling, 150% to doubling of your from your baseline creatinine. Um, and then uh, stage two being one to three Xing your creatinine and stage three being greater than three, uh, three times your creatinine or starting on dialysis. Um, and the reason why I think these thresholds are important, number one is, you know, 
is this 0.3 cutoff too low? In actuality, it's not. You know, if you look at a, this is one small study that looked at a proportion of patients with cirrhosis who were followed over time. And it showed that those who experienced even these small episodes of AKI defined as just a 0.3 increase in their serum creatinine from baseline was associated with decreased patient survival. And the reason why I, I kind of really highlight this threshold, because this is one of my favorite studies. So this was a study that was done amongst uh, patients with decompensated cirrhosis who were hospitalized with acute kidney injury. And what this study showed is that, you know, if you're diagnosed with stage one, if you have no progression or reversal of your kidney function back to normal, your mortality in the hospital is only 2%. However, if you have progression to stage two, that increases to 29%. To stage three or dialysis, it goes 50 to 56%. On the contrary, if you're hospitalized with stage two AKI and you have no progression, mortality is only 7%. So even so if you progress from stage one to stage two, you have a 29%, but if you stay stable at stage two, it's only 7%. And you can see this plan out throughout where essentially the, the key in any hospitalized patient with cirrhosis who has acute kidney injury is to do everything we can to prevent progression to these higher stages. And part of preventing progression is recognizing it earlier. And so that's why I think that 0.3 cutoff is so important in this population. And so that's how we define acute kidney injury. But the other side of this is chronic kidney disease. And notoriously, the estimations of GFR are problematic in patients with cirrhosis. You know, when patients develop cirrhosis, creatine, the precursor of creatinine, comes from the liver. So that's decreased. Our patients are malnourished and have decreased skeletal mass. And so naturally, their creatinines are going to be lower. And with all of that, every calculator, regardless of which one, will overestimate to a certain extent the patient's true GFR as compared, uh, as compared to a me- uh, estimated GFR as compared to their measured GFR. And so there, uh, so this is true of all the calculators. I will say um, this is a nice systematic review that went through each of the calculators. And in the last two to three years, there have been two calculators, one called GRAIL and one from the Royal Free Hospital from London that have been standardized in patients with cirrhosis that have been found to be more precise with less bias to overestimation. However, even these are imperfect where there will still be some overestimation of GFR. And so regardless of the formula, in general, it's accepted that any estimation of GFR is going to be slightly, at least slightly overestimating a patient's true uh, glomerular filtration rate. And so um, to kind of describe why this burden of this problem is so important um, is that, you know, when our patients with cirrhosis develop AKI or CKD, it really impacts not just their quality of life. We um, uh, and it, we know it is associated with their risk of mortality. You know, as creatinine is built into the MELD score, be- as patients' creatinine increases, their risk of dying increases. But it also plays a huge factor. So, number one, these AKI and CKD are interrelated. When a patient develops AKI, they're more likely to develop chronic kidney disease, and when a patient has chronic kidney disease, they're more likely to develop AKI. And the contrary is true. Uh, and I believe I said this already. I apologize. Um, and, and this is also true of AKI causing CKD. Um, so this was a nice study of patients who were hospitalized with AKI 
Um, and it compared patients who are hospitalized with AKI to those who are hospitalized without AKI. And what, what this study showed is that, you know, about 25% of those people who developed acute kidney injury were in the hospital and then got discharged had chronic kidney disease at three months. And so, you know, given that we said about 50 to 75% of our patients will experience an episode of AKI, and then those people will develop on CKD, you can see how the burden of chronic kidney disease is just increasing this population as they await for transplant. And additionally, you know, after these patients are hospitalized with AKI, the risk doesn't disappear with discharge, even if their kidney dysfunction improves. Um, this was a nice study out of the VA group um, that shows that, you know, the that patients, once they're hospitalized, are at significant risk of mortality upon discharge. This study showed that those with early follow-up had a lower mortality and the lower uh, uh, rates of readmission than those with more delayed follow-up. Um, but it just kind of really just highlights um, in the numbers just how tenuous these patients are, especially once they're, um, they've been hospitalized um, several times. And so we know in practice that these episodes of AKA and CKD one kind of feed each other, but also we know that it really impacts quality of life, um, particularly in terms of ascites. I think many of us who have managed these patients on the pre-liver transplant side know how difficult it is to titrate diuretics or to, um, or to prevent readmissions um, or to, you know, patients then once they develop chronic kidney disease to developing refractory ascites and then the nutrition and infectious and other complications can develop from there. And so, and so that really kind of gets at us in terms of how can we fix the problem. So number one, when patients develop chronic kidney disease, we, we, uh, you know, we work towards getting them towards, you know, a simultaneous liver kidney transplant. We had known that the practice of utilizing liver kidney transplant was quite variable throughout the country. And so in 2017, this has been standardized where patients who meet one of three categories will qualify for a simultaneous liver kidney transplant. Um, and the first category being chronic kidney disease. So these are patients with an estimated GFR less than 30 for 90 days, uh, with uh, less than 60, excuse me, for 90 days, with the final one at the time of transplant of less than 30. Then there's that group of patients who have sustained acute kidney injury. So that's defined as six weeks of a GFR less than 25 or requiring dialysis. Um, and then there's a, a, an exception pathway for those with metabolic disease and, and other rare syndromes that require a, a simultaneous liver kidney transplant in terms of curative therapies. And it seems that this policy at least um, uh, has kind of slowed the growth in simultaneous liver kidney transplant in some capacity. Um, you can see the blue dots are what are happening in actuality, and the blue line is what was projected to happen had the policy not gone into practice. And so part of this reasoning is that patient that there was a, a variability in the utilization excuse me, in the utilization of SLKT. And by creating a standardized practice, there, there are people it has become slightly though not a huge change, but slightly more restrictive in terms of the utilization of, of dual uh, liver kidney. Um, but, you know, the one of the main worries about uh, restricting SLKT in a lot of patients was that, you know, what about that group of people who would have gotten a simultaneous liver kidney transplant, but 
we decide just to do the liver and then, um, and then are still left with chronic kidney disease or on dialysis after transplant. And so with the, that policy, there was also the building of a safety net. And so what the safety net means is that those patients with a GFR less than 25 at the time of 90 days after their liver transplant will have priority for a kidney transplant after a liver transplant alone. Um, and their priority is pretty good, actually. And most patients who have qualified for the uh, kidney after liver transplant and have not had a complication of their surgery and still remain physically fit for uh, for another organ transplant um, have been making it to transplant. And so um, what the sequence is depicted in the back here, but really short of the highest quality kidneys, those patients who are on the safety net um, will get access and pretty high access to, um, you know, everything but the best kidneys, which is good. Um, and likewise, that has led to an increased utilization, as you would expect, of kidney after liver transplants um, that went into effect. And even though we have this safety net, it has uh, the net of it has been a reduction in utilization of kidneys, which is obviously very important from the kidney transplant side of things. And so uh, given the shortages there. So even though we have this safety net in totality has led to a reduction in total amount of kidneys used um, in terms of uh, those requiring a liver transplant. And how are we doing in terms of outcomes? And the outcomes for simultaneous liver kidney transplant are great and the policy had no impact on those. Um, of naturally, the, the dark blue line here at the top in figure A is patient survival and those patients who just get a kidney transplant alone. And that's a different population than those who have required a liver transplant or are getting a liver transplant at the same time. So naturally, though, the outcomes in those who have had a liver or getting a liver at the same time will be worse. And that's these three lines here. But these uh, these two lower lines within the confidence intervals, um, those are the that's those are the um, uh, the pre and post policy of simultaneous liver kidney transplant, and you can see that those uh, those did not the policy did not change those outcomes at all. And this dark gray line here is uh, liver transplant alone. And you know I think that what this shows is that you know if you have two organs, you're clearly sicker, and so you know there's that toll that takes on the on the on, in terms of uh, survival after transplant, and the same and the same kind of findings hold true for liver graft survival, not just patient survival. But at the same time, there's still some fine tuning that you know is we're all considering in terms of um, simultaneous liver kidney transplant. The time of it, you know, this is a study we did, but the UCLA group did a similar study where we looked at. Um, outcomes of simultaneous liver kidney transplant by their MELD score at the time of transplant. And what you can see is that the sicker someone is, the more, you know, uh, acute on chronic liver failure or the, you know, the greater degree of illness or lack of, or, or lack of physical reserve, the increased risk of graft, kidney graft failure in particular that increases as the MELD at the time of transplant increases. And while the kidney after liver transplant um, outcomes seem to be the best. Uh, seem to be the best, and whether that has to do with the acuity of illness or this, you know, the blood pressure at the time of transplant. Uh, there are many factors that go into this that you can't control for all in these kinds of retrospective studies. 
However, in some places, if patients are acutely ill, you know, we will consider just a liver transplant and then consideration for a kidney transplant once patients have covered now that we have the safety net in place. But, you know, I think one of the key points, too, is that transplant is for the few and what can we do for the many. And I think that really gets to the hepatologist in me and um, about prevention. Um, And, you know, more and more studies are coming out in terms of how we can prevent AKI. Um, So this study here was a study from the European group that looked at um, outpatients who are requiring serial LVPs. And this is kind of why we encourage um, uh, patients to receive albumin um, at the time of their large volume paracentesis. And so what this was standard of medical uh, therapy uh, plus albumin is the red line. Um, versus um, uh, just standard medical therapy is the blue line. And, uh, and although this graph just shows the um, increase in albumin levels with treatment, um, what this paper shows is that it reduces the episodes of acute kidney injury in particular um, in those who have received albumin with their LVPs as, a, as opposed to those who did not. And then there are other factors that we all pay attention to. Um, some of the data I showed earlier being that chronic kidney disease is a really shows that patients are more susceptible to acute kidney injury. So we pay special attention to, for instance, dose of diuretics um, or or patients getting albumin with TAPS and those with chronic kidney disease. More and more, we're paying attention to people's outpatient mean arterial pressures. We know that the lower the pressure is, the more likely patients are to have decompensation, AKI, and even death on the wait list. Um, The trials that have tried to augment blood pressure in terms of MAP, like the, you know, there have been randomized trials of Midodrin and and other studies that have been not successful, but still something that we consider. Um, We worry about AKI in particular and CKD in those groups with the NAFL, the diabetes, hypertension, as that we know that they're more susceptible and, and the estimations we're using are probably impractical or incorrect. Um, and then and then the refractory ascites groups are the ones that we really pay close attention to. And in addition, uh, you know, we also try to prevent CKD and death in patients who are hospitalized with AKI. Um, and, and the data I showed earlier about preventing progression, and so early resuscitation, early starting of um, vasopressors, um, it, the sooner you start that in a patient's AKI during a hospitalization, the more likely you are to have reversal and improvement. Um, and, and so we are using a lot of these vasoactive agents. Um, many may be aware that terlipressin has finally been approved by the FDA, and um, we're working on getting it on formulary in the next few months. Um, and the ad- advantage mostly of terlipressin is that it can be given on the floor or in a, um, or in a step-down unit. Um, we have tr- clinical trials in place for HRS, AKI in particular, um, that we are happy to consider referrals if patients are suspected of having it. Um, and then the other thing that's really important is that if a patient's acute kidney injury reverses, um, it can recur. And so, you know, be vigilant. If you have to restart treatment, um, be mindful about restarting it sooner than later. Um, And also, you know, be thoughtful about diuretics, other nephrotoxic medications, and particularly NSAIDs. These are all the kinds of things that we pay close attention to to kind of prevent, um, um, prevent, you know, um, the CKD and and even death amongst, amongst people who are hospitalized with AKI.
Um, and then the, the last point I want to make is what about the opposite scenario? You know, a lot of patients with stage four CKD who have diabetes and hypertension, a lot of them may have underlying liver disease that is not diagnosed. Um, and so there's limited data uh, for this population because, you know, the, it's just it, not all the factors to define cirrhosis or even a FIB4 in SRTR is not readily available. Um, and often we are sent these patients from the kidney transplant team with a request to risk stratify surgery or decide if somebody requires a simultaneous liver kidney transplant. And in general, our practice is, the, is kind of like this, that we will use some non-invasive metrics to, uh, to do a fibrosis assessment. Sometimes it's as simple as a FIB4 um, or splenomegaly uh, on ultrasound, um, but also it can be a fiber scan or MR elastography. Um, if a patient has clearly has clinically significant portal hypertension, for instance, if they have varices on endoscopy or ascites, then we'll usually recommend a simultaneous liver kidney transplant because there's the risk of decompensation during the kidney transplant alone. Um, and if a patient has clear signs of fibrosis with the screening test, but no clear signs of clinically significant portal hypertension, um, then we'll complete um, either, a, a, usually we'll complete a, a hepatic vein portal, uh, a portal gradient. Um, and depending on, you know, their platelets, their spleen size, et cetera, we'll decide either doing a preemptive tips if the pressure is elevated ver uh, and a kidney transplant alone after the tips, or if there's other signs of, you know, uh, portal hypertension, then we'll just go down the simultaneous liver kidney transplant pathway. And so with that, um, I'll conclude that kidney dysfunction is an increasingly more common issue among patients with cirrhosis. Recognition and the definitions are important um, because earlier diagnosis can improve outcomes. Um, and also recognizing that the definitions of CKD are inaccurate in liver patients. And so having to be more aware because the estimations will overestimate kidney function. Simultaneous liver kidney transplant is a common procedure with great outcomes, um, as is kidney after liver transplant. Um, we are working on different trials and, and ways to investigate how we can actually prevent and decrease the burden of kidney dysfunction in the cirrhosis population. Um, and the management of kidney dysfunction in liver patients is difficult, both for patients in terms of, you know, it leads to more ascites, hospitalizations, and puts them at greater risk for death, but also for providers. It's difficult to know when to restart diuretics. It's hard to manage refractory ascites in the outpatient clinic. Um, and so that is why we're spending so much time trying to find ways to prevent these complications. And that is my talk. Thank you so much, Dr. Colaro. Um, now we'll say, you know, really comprehensive um, overview of um, folks who have liver disease and kidney disease. Um, you, um, you touched on uh, this notion of underestimation of uh, creatinine, and you spoke about um, different um, measures that could be employed to more accurately estimate the, the GFR. Can you speak a little bit about um, how soon we will likely see those estimators um, in our daily practice and, and what, may be, um, what, what may be 
um, limiting that those in in photos. Yeah, yeah. You know, the big issue is that unlike the kidney population, we don't have a uh, a large cohort of uh, people who have had measured GFRs. The largest one is um, the Royal Free Hospital has a fairly large cohort. Um, though it's not not as representative in particularly in African-American race as the U.S. Um, and then Baylor has a large um, uh, measured GFR cohort um, as well. And those are where the two calculators came from. Um, the Baylor cohort, the, uh, the shortcoming of theirs is that they have a high burden of hep C um, and, uh, and they included variables that are not captured in UNOS. And so it hasn't been able to be implemented in terms of, um, you know, uh, like, for instance, they even created a meld that was based off of the GFR. So I think one of the big struggles will be to, uh, to be able to actually create a a formula that is appropriate, has the correct exponents for, for the liver cirrhosis population, um, that part is difficult. And then the other side of this is measuring GFR is just cumbersome. Um, you know, we have uh, two ways of doing it at UCSF, but, you know, one is for research that we've been doing that is just, it, it's not even that accurate because it's like timing of, of different, um, I, like the clearance of IOHexol. And then uh, the radiology group has another that is feasible, but, you know, it's just impractical because it's like a nuclear study that they have to go and get. So um, there's efforts to to kind of create these standardized equations, but I'm, I don't know how soon it'll change because I don't, no one really has a large comprehensive cohort that like they do when they generate these for the population and the kidney population. Now, sort of further to that point, in terms of um, in terms of uh, this overestimation of GFR, uh, can you speak a little bit about populations of individuals who may well be disadvantaged as a result of uh, this overestimation of GFR on their MALD score and their ability to get a, a liver transplant? Yeah. So, you know, number one is we know that the women are the most affected um, and that and it has played a big factor in terms of um, uh, the sex based disparity that we've seen in liver transplant. And that is will hopefully be changing as MELD 3.0 comes out. We'll have a coefficient for sex that is built into that. So that should hopefully correct. Um, the other is we know that these estimations of GFR um, at least, at, at, and there were two studies at uh, ASLD this year um, that African American race um, may be leading to an overestimation of GFR in that population in particular. Um, one study showed that uh, pay, that these two there were two studies. One study looked at the removing race from uh, from the formulas would affect African-American people more and that they may not qualify for SLKs um, as um, because it'll lead to an increase if you use these non-race-based estimations of GFR. Um, and then the second study show uh, is one from Baylor that they are, um, that if you, if you used a non-race-based GRAIL equation, which was the estimation of GFR done for cirrhosis patients, um, you actually lead there, 
if you remove race, it's less a- accurate in African-American patients, at least in their population. Um, and so uh, the, it's essentially is something that just needs to be mindfully changed um, because, you know, obviously race is a social construct. And, and so it doesn't make perfect sense in these estimations of GFR. Um, however, you know, those are the two populations we worry about that will um that you know for women it's access to transplant and then in um and for african americans is will they qualify will we impact their if they'll qualify for a simultaneous liver can, uh kidney transplant if we change to a non-race based equation it's great to it's great to hear that the transplant com- community are mindful of these uh issues that are facing these distinct populations and uh, hopefully, um, bringing about change to to lead to more equitable um, uh, organ allocation and, um, and and thinking about ways to modify our current systems to to make it more equitable. You know, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.